When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 75th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is I Disagree, The Value of Rebellion. I'm joined by Jackie Fast. She is the author of Rule Breaker, Rebellious Leadership for the Future of Work. The publisher is Kogan Page. Jackie is the founder of the venture capital firm Sandbox Studios, which invests in celebrity-owned brands and has worked with the Rolling Stones, Red Bull, Zoom, Formula One, Virgin Alliance, and Universal Music. Welcome to the show, Jackie. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. So uh, if you don't mind, start us out with a brief overview of the book. Sure. Well, I mean, Rule Breaker is really a con culmination of my experience. I've been kind of doing my career for over 20 years and uh, I, I work in a really niche, different industry where I basically build and broker big, big partnerships. So uh, as you mentioned, you know, Formula One, the Rolling Stones, Richard Branson, and I would do big commercial deals for those types of people. And what I found, I, you know, I ended up working with some of the best, you know, musicians out there, some of the best entrepreneurs out there, some of the best brands out there. And there was a common thread between with everybody that I worked with. And, and it was all that they didn't have the same type of path, you know, go to university, get a job, climb up the ladder. Almost always, um, there was, you know, a kind of a pivotal moment where they decided to change gears and that kind of accelerated their business. And I think it was from that small um, pivot that they kind of gained the confidence to start asking questions, start looking at things a different way. Um, and me, myself, you know, I have my own experience about being bold, being a rule breaker, kind of doing things different. And uh, for me, I'm not a I, I'm not a natural rule breaker, I wouldn't have said. Uh, and I certainly, I was very much down the path of get a get a job, get a career, get a mortgage, get a nine to five uh, kind of life uh, until I was forced to start my own agency, which I never wanted to, which I didn't feel that I had experience to do. Uh, and that changed the 
that changed my entire life. Um, so the book really tries to like shine a light on those people that are breaking rules, try to really shine the light on the positive outcomes of them doing so, um, and also provide a little bit of guidance for how you would go about starting to become a rule breaker and starting to really get the confidence to start kind of paving your own path. Okay, so I, I suspect there's a story there because you said forced to start my own agency. I mean, one can go lots of paths, but you know, starting your own business. So uh, first of all, how did you choose what you chose? And also uh, forced, what, what, what context are we talking about here? What was going on in your life at that point? Oh my God. I mean, do you, this is only half an hour. I don't think we've got all day. <laughs> Sadly. Um, I'll try. I'll no, try and... You can be brief, but you, you can't leave the audience hanging here. Now we're, now we're curious. No problem. Okay. So I'm Canadian and I um, didn't really know what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And I had heard that you, people should backpack Europe. So when I graduated university, I worked at a job for a very brief stint and I decided to go backpack Europe. And I um, bought the cheapest one-way ticket I could find, which ended up landing me in London. I had never been to Europe. I'd never been to London. Quite frankly, I don't think I'd been farther than Disneyland at that, st at that stage. And I'd planned to stay for just two months. And when I arrived, I was just so amazed with London that I never left. And I mean, I was there for 20 years. So I mean, that's how amazed I was with London. But the first job I had was in sponsorship. And the reason I got that job was not because I had experience, but because they needed somebody in sponsorship. And I was so desperate for a visa. Um, and so they very kindly helped me get a visa if I would take the sponsorship job, to which I said, of course I would, obviously frantically Googling, like, what is sponsorship? How do you do sponsorship? <laughs> um, and, you know, fortunately, it turned out I was very good at it. Like, quite frankly, Dan, if they said I would give you a visa to be a janitor, I would probably have done that and been really great. And maybe we would be talking about a very different book. Uh, but sponsorship is kind of what I set off to do. I was very good at it. I um, then... Uh, truthfully, what happened is I applied for the commercial director job in that company and was promptly sat in front of the CEO who told me that I was too young, I didn't have enough experience, and I had to go kind of do more work, even though at that time I, I was the second, I was bringing in the second greatest revenue into the business of 75 people, uh, and I was single-handedly doing that. They then hired a commercial director who, to this day, is the worst person I've ever worked for, and certainly the <laughs> stupidest person I've ever worked for, and he still contacts me, even though I very like openly talk about this. Um, but uh, that basically really hurt my feelings, I guess. And also just, I was doing such a great job and to be overlooked was heartbreaking for me. Uh, and so I went to try to get a different job in sponsorship to which I was turned down promptly by every single agency. Nobody even would take the time to have a coffee with me. Uh, and so I really didn't have a choice. I couldn't work for the boss that I had and nobody would hire me in sponsorship, but I was also in the UK and I had no family and no friends and no kind of network. So I had to set up my own business being a sponsorship consultant, really, that's where it started. And I kind of sat in my bedroom and was hoping that I would make 80,000 pounds, which would pay my accountant and the rent and maybe have a little bit of money for some coffees left over. And I, uh, you know, I think, I think the first year, I can't even remember in the first year, but by year two or three, we were all like four or 5 million. Um, by four, by year four, I was spending six weeks of the year on Richard Branson's Island, uh, Necker Island, um, doing a, a number of work, work for him. And I mean, that 
you know, in hindsight, obviously it's very, very different, but I, you know, it never would have been the direction I would have chose. I, I would have really realistically, I probably would have listened to that CEO. I probably would have gotten more experience and have slowly kind of climbed up, climbed up the ladder. So I was forced to be a rule breaker because I didn't have a choice, but had I not have done that, I mean, my whole world opened up from that. And so what my, what rule breaker the book is really about is like, how can you tap into that um, and kind of look at what you can achieve beyond what you think you can achieve. And again, going back to, I think a lot of it is I'm very good at sponsorship because I really, truly love my job and I really love, um, and that was a lucky situation, but, you know, I found that I was good at sponsorship. I love sponsorship. And because of that, you know, my success has really been based on my alignment of that, but I never, I would never have done that had I not have been forced to be a bit of a rule breaker. Okay, well, you're certainly living out uh, Samuel Johnson's comment from the 18th century. He who is tired of London is tired of life. So clearly you love that and you have loved sponsorship. What was it about sponsorship that really fit your your personality, your your energy level, whatever the case may be? Sponsorship is really tricky. Um, so when you consider that 70% of joint ventures fail, sponsorship is similar. So you're putting two very different types of whether it's brands or people or organizations with very different objectives, with very different people together, and you have to work it so that it works for all parties. It is very hard to do well. Um, there is an art form for doing it. Uh, and I, I really relish creating exceptional partnerships. And to, I mean, the reason Slingshot was so successful is we did stuff that nobody ever thought could be possible. And um, we didn't, we maybe didn't work with a million clients, but the one, the work that we did was really like, you know, it's work that I'm proud of, proud of to this day. Uh, and oh, no, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous track record. Yes. And you were very successful. So almost what you're pulling off in a way is like temporary mergers and acquisitions because you're bringing these two different brands together. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So early in the book, you know, I read a lot of statistics, of course, because I read a lot of books and they often mention how the world is changing in this way and that way. Uh, but you found a new way to do that because you mentioned that, uh, you know, there's certainly leadership authors and you say that if, for instance, they began their career in 1970, well, lo and behold, the world had one half of the population it has today. So you come from a very different vantage point uh, making that comment because obviously there are some people with lots of gray hair who you know would fall victim to not knowing where the world has moved to. You are saying at one point in the book that, you know, we talk about millennials, so now about 75% of the workforce are soon to be there. And you say that Gen X valued informality and Gen, you know, and the millennials, on the other hand, value diversity. Can you talk to me about Gen X and the millennials and, and your perspective on them? For sure. Like, I mean, I'm an old millennial. For, I'm like kind of on the cusp, depending on what kind of stats you want to look at. But a lot, a lot of it frames your experience. So, you know, my parents, it, they would be fortunate to get a nine to five job and have a mortgage. When my dad got his first house, I think his interest rate was like 26%. You know, our lives and our access as younger people are different. And yes, you know, it, there is a benefit there. We're not burdened with um, the basic needs like shelter, you know, or is there going to be a war that's going to happen or even the the output of that war. Um, but that means that there are different values that we're able to look into. So Gen X is a, a great example, but, you know, even um, Gen Z is a really interesting uh, cohort as well, because they really care about values. They care about a quality 
more than any other generation has previously, and they're willing to do something about it. That shifts everything in, in a corporation because um, they want to work for people and organizations that also care. Um, and if you don't care, they will find somewhere else to go. So A, it's shifting leadership. It has to. Um, yep. And B, as they evolve, it ch- will change businesses. It will change the types of businesses that get funded, that um, that work, that get business, really. And I think this is just a very different time. Um, and I think it's very difficult to be an older person, a gray-haired person, and talk about leadership to a younger generation because they're like apples to oranges you know it's it's not even they're not even on the same page really and I'm not even I'm not a Gen Zer and I and I certainly don't want to kind of say that you know come across like I'm a know-it-all at all um, and that I'm super in with this but one one of the fortunate things that I have always had is I have always been very young working with older people and now I am old working with younger people I've, I've kind of on that cusp. I'm a, like an, I'm a very old millennial, but still millennial. I set up my business when I was 25 years old. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not Gen Z now, but I, you know, I feel like I'm closer to them than certainly, I don't want to say Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani is a book that I read recently. Um, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's just a, you know, it's just a totally different ballgame. And if you look at Rudy Giuliani as well, and kind of like his book on leadership, I, I thought was a, really good book, but kind of where he's in now and the whole Trump administration, do you know what I mean? It's, it shows their value system is very different to a younger person's value system. And what that means for leadership is, you know, incomparable. Yeah, no, I, well, I, I, I thought this was really important because even before this came up, this generational shift, you know, executives with their compensation have become increasingly economically separated from the workforce. Uh, given the you know enormous paychecks and golden parachutes, but now you add in the you know the change of generations in terms of being driven by value system, and as you report in the book, you know they'll actually take a pay cut, they'll go for less pay, knowing there is no job security because they want the meaning, they want it to be aligned based on values. So, have you seen uh, companies that you think have found some way to? connect better with the senior leadership and the young people? Is it dialogues, roundtables? Have they set up executive committees that meet with committees of younger informal leaders in the in the company? How, how do you, either whether you've seen it or you could envision it, because uh, you're not afraid of setting down new rules and ideas, h- how can that dynamic not become precarious for companies whose leadership could be indeed very out of touch? So honestly, the truth I get asked that question a lot, actually. It's interesting. Um, But the truth of the matter is, and I hate to say this because it's so, truthfully, it's crap, but you can't. I I have been in so many organizations where we have put in place things like roundtables, where we've put in place future leaders programs, where we have, um, but leaders at the top, if they don't, if there's no benefit for them in order to do this, Yes, they might whitewash it. Yes, they might put these programs in place, but there's no real action. They don't actually yeah. take into account this stuff. And the truth, the truth of the matter is, and this is super, super harsh, um, they're just going to die off or just get replaced. And it, it won't be until that happens on a mass or majority scale that you'll see a shift. But I haven't successfully seen top leadership with that mindset ever change, ever. Um, and no, no. it's horrible. Well, 
Well, I, I totally appreciate your candor. I have extreme doubts myself. I have, you know, read all sorts of advice and possibilities here and uh, harbor deep suspicions that it won't, you know, matter at all. Uh, about the only last thing I fall back on is the idea of what I guess I'll call immersive experiences where they're actually thrown into situations where they've got to be jarred by different perspectives, different experiences, and sharing them with people outside their own uh, socioeconomic and age bracket to at least uh, open their eyes a bit more. That's about the last thing I can come up with. I, I don't know if you've seen that as well. And, and uh, also it, it goes down like a lead balloon. Well, I mean, COVID helped in a way. And I think if you look, I think there's a study that I pulled from KPMG um, and they measured the top kind of CEOs feelings about uh, mission and value and their employees. And it shifted, I think, about 25 percent um, where people cared more and understood that that is important to um, create a really good working environment. So I think if the co- if COVID isn't going to sh- jar you it's it's also you got to remember these people have spent mostly 40 plus years in working in a certain way and to completely upheaval that is not a small ask and when you are 60 and you're looking at leaving in five years quite frankly why would you why would you change yeah Yeah. and i and i get that but the the truth of the matter is is uh, i think you would have seen change happen more if uh people kind of at the top weren't holding on for dear life to the old way of doing things but you will quickly very quickly see that change so ceos are leaving at a dramatic rate new younger businesses are coming up like i don't think this will be a slow burn all of a sudden everything will look different and it's not because everything is different it's because this has been bubbling for too long yeah, no, when you are that disconnected from both your workforce and your consumer base, uh, yeah, I don't see how it's how it's tenable. So let, let's shift over into e-commerce and, and the, the tools and access, because as you said, it can be potentially, and most times is, very democratizing. But there is, of course, you know, something else to this, another wrinkle, which is, you know, they also the big tech companies, as you note, are commoditizing us. Uh, there's a wonderful book out there that you may have read called Surveillance Capitalism. And I don't mean it's wonderful as in cheery, uh, more that it is uh, such a striking book uh, for the way in which you know we are being turned into, as someone said, digital sharecroppers. So it seems to me that the internet and e-commerce has a liberating aspect and strangely also has an enslaving aspect to it. Uh, what's your take on things? Am I getting at, you know, this is kind of brought up in your book, but maybe I'm putting things together unfairly. So I want you to be able to speak to this matter. I have two minds about it. I think, you know, I mean, I'm somebody with very little time and I personally love e-commerce. I haven't been to a shop in years now, probably. Um, and I, everything I order is online. And I actually appreciate when good recommendations happen. And, you know, Instagrams are really, Instagram is probably one of the very few social media uh, platforms that I use, but I am obviously very targeted. So anything I say or anything I'm searching, I get served ads that way. But truthfully, if I didn't have that, I probably would never buy anything. And maybe that's not, not necessarily a bad thing. 
So I think there's value in that. Um, and I think that nobody's really, I mean, obviously Google and Amazon have tapped into that really, really well, but I think there's something different about authenticity and it, it has allowed independent brands to come up. You don't need a bricks and mortar store. You don't need to be in the retail shops in order to sell. And actually most of the time it's really prohibitive. Um, so I think that's a really great opportunity. Um, but yeah, I do, I do also think it sucks that all of us are spending so much time on our phones and, and more than that, that that time is being, you know, that that's tracked. putting more, yeah. yeah, tracked and putting money in Bezos's pocket, you know, like I'm certainly not against it. And I'm certainly, I'm certainly not somebody who's like all big brother. Um, and I think there's a lot of value to the tech that we've got. And I'm certainly, certainly pro tech, but I feel like, you know, a lot of these big tech companies, the, what they started out planning on doing hasn't really been that you know uber was really supposed to be a way to make some spare extra cash to do the things that you love on the side and now drivers are getting paid less than minimum wage often working 12 14 hour shifts in order to just pay rent you know so the, the i think a lot of these tech giants started out with really great social um, ambitions that, and they've just strayed very, very far away from that because of shareholders, because of capitalism, because of greed, really. Uh, going back to our original or the discussion about Gen Zs, I think that will change. And I think that will change with the new leaders that we have coming up. So I don't, I'm not too, too worried. I think there's going to be definitely, I think they'll end up getting broken up. I think different people will end up managing it. Uh, there's a lot of kind of anti-social media, social media platforms that are coming up because of the isolation a lot of young people feel. I think that will come into play as well. So I think there's going to be a big shift in it. Okay. Well, I think that aligns with my sense of the book. I, I really appreciated how it was, optimistic and forward-thinking and very energetic, but it didn't do it in some naive, starry-eyed way that everything is is perfect. Can we just flow into uh, nirvana? Because you know there are things out there that are problematic, whether it's leadership or what some of these companies have indeed morphed into over time. So I would be missed if I didn't uh, take the opportunity to ask about your experience being on The Apprentice. <laughs> of course. Um, yes. So what would you like to know, Dan? Um, well, I'm a little confused, I admit. Um, was this meaning you were actually on the set with Donald Trump, or is there a British version you were on? I, I parsed the book, and I, I wasn't quite sure which it was. And if there's a British version, I'm not aware of it. There is a British version you're not aware of. That's the one I was on. Okay. So it's with Lord Sugar. I don't know. Okay. But uh, you, you, um, it's, for someone who's done so well in business, uh, I'm not surprised that you made a long way through the competition. What did you think particularly helped you in that? What did you learn over the course of your time already in business that you think uh, helped you avoid the cut repeatedly on the British <laughs> version? Um, truthfully, I did it kind of more as a laugh and for just a different experience. And I've certainly learned a lot about how reality TV show gets uh, made and that I really, really loved. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, I did it kind of just to do something. I didn't really, I wasn't planning on winning. I would never ever give 50% of any business for just 250,000 pounds. That's, that's what you get in the UK. That's not, I mean, I just would never do that. I sold my last business for millions and I owned uh, like hundred percent of it. So I was never planning on winning. I did just go for the experience. I, I think one of the things I learned is that I didn't realize how, um, 
naive some people were in terms of like going on television thinking it's going to make make your career and I, I think that was an interesting highlight um but definitely definitely great experience and I would 100% do it again um with the with the whole experience in mind basically oh okay well um I, I may invite you to say what more you learned about the realities of reality tv but uh I'll package that with another question which is you said that attending and entering industry award competitions you found was a very good marketing tactic. So I gather that's something you would recommend to others and why was it so successful? And then if you want to loop back in whatever you learned about the reality of reality TV shows, that's great. If you want to ignore that thing and just stick with the award competitions, so be it. The reality about reality TV shows, um, that a lot of it's actually really true, but the stuff that you don't understand is that they create the emotional drive to make people react. So the reactions are always real, but the the emotions are heightened. So what I was so surprised at, I didn't plan on winning. I was just there for fun. I was really enjoyed it. But the way that they, the producer, they're very clever. The way that producers make it, it makes you feel like it's the most important thing in the world. And even objectively, I knew it wasn't, but I still emotionally felt charged. So when, when we did those boardrooms and everything else, I think, you know, those are all of the things that I said are all things that I said myself. Um, but the context and the environment is what makes them more charged and from an entertainment standpoint, more interesting. So that's the reality of reality TV. Um, so okay. I mean, I, you know, one of the things I think there's a lot, of, there should be a lot more credit that goes to the people that are working behind the scenes in reality TV shows. And I did not appreciate that until having done one, which I thought was really interesting going to the awards thing. So, I mean, I'll take this within context of the other one. So I think being on a show like The Apprentice, so The Apprentice is the highest watched show in the UK when it is on. It's the number one rated show. I have probably graced 20 covers of newspapers and magazines because of it. Um, And so my awareness as a person um, definitely gained. I was already pretty well known I'd sold my business by then within the business community, but certainly not from a general population community. And truthfully, it didn't help me. And I I kind of thought it, I mean, I thought it might hinder me. I mean, I didn't think it was going to be horrible, but I, you know, it didn't help me and it didn't really, if anything, it did hinder me. I'd still would do it again in a heartbeat because I don't really care what people think. But um, I think a lot of people expect that if they do something like that or get a lot of recognition that, you know, the rest of the world will fall in line and give them lots of money and and fame and success. And it just doesn't really work like that. Alternatively, going back to the awards um, situation, I won a lot of awards. I entered a lot of awards. I, I, I loved just going and networking. I'm definitely a people person. But I didn't have any money when I first started Slingshot Sponsorship. And so marketing was way outside of my reach. Uh, And so winning awards really was the only way a small business like mine could gain any kind of recognition or PR. So that's why I did it. Um, And it it did work because we we a won all of the awards. So when a small agency is kind of taking up all of the wins at every single uh, awards industry event, people take notice. And that's how, that's how I got slingshot onto the forefront of everybody's radar. Okay. Well, I, I just have one personal, uh, I've been on a fair amount of television myself, but certainly not the apprentice. And one time I was 
walking up, uh, I think it was Sixth Avenue in New York, and the two gentlemen in front of me were discussing my appearance on CNN the evening before. And we even all got had to stop at the light. And, uh, you know, I was right there. And even though they were discussing me, they didn't recognize me uh, just because I was dressed differently, I suppose. But, um, yes, it does not necessarily open the world quite in the way one might expect at times. Well, it's, I mean, we you're ha- on CNN, though. CNN is pretty – like, I'd want to be on CNN. That's a good thing to be on. Yeah, no, it was interesting work. Um, I was looking at presidential candidates and so forth, so um, a specialty of mine. Um, so one last thing before we run out of time here, because I think it's really important, because so much work now is going to be done. Let, let's leave aside the, the CEOs and the executives and whether or not they're dinosaurs and all of that. But the workplace of tomorrow and of today already is really collaborative in nature. And so what you say is a new definition for a leader, which is that they have they you know marshal people towards or help inspire towards collective thought that leads to collective action. And you had some rules for that. Find your passion, stand for something, be authentic, be an expert. And I want to make sure, it seems to me, those, those kinds of guidelines were central to your message. And before we close this interview, I wanted to give you a chance to add in anything you wanted to that's maybe beyond the book that's occurred to you since you wrote it, or maybe the most eloquent distillation of it that you want to offer. Well, I mean, I think... So for me, this is my second book, actually. My first book, I I talked about sponsorship and how to kind of go out and get it. This book is was very, very different. Um, And it really is not just like my take on the way leadership should be. It really is kind of I feel like a manifesto for the way most people I mean, it's a desire for the way that I hope most people would see themselves and, and work in the way that that they would want to work. And I do lots of talks. Uh, I go to lots of events. I do lots of podcasts like this. And what I always find time and time again is, you know, people are desperate to change, but either too scared or don't understand how to pivot. And they just sit and they think and they think and they think. And um, what I hope Rule Breaker can achieve or at least help people achieve is some actual tips. So going to your point, when you talk about, you know, finding your passion, being authentic, um, finding your voice, standing for something, these are key. These are key things that everybody can do, but very few people actually do. And even fewer actually do in the workplace um, or, or at least with a career viewed mind. And so I think once you start doing that, you feel more aligned to the things that you want to do, which then gives that what gives you the confidence to, you know, take a step in a different direction, um, think outside the box, maybe do a new job, have a side hustle, etc. Going to the collaboration, for me, that has been cornerstone of my career. Obviously, I work in sponsorship, so it's also kind of my skill set and my job. But the truth of the matter is new leadership isn't top town leadership. Good leadership is working with people. And to your point about diversity and inclusion, everybody has value and it's really about how you harness that value. And I think historically, when we were talking about an older generation, they're really, their, their whole mantra is how do we get the best out of people? How do we, how do we care it and stick them? So they're motivated to do this job. And I think moving forward, the point is, is that people should do jobs that they love and, and by harnessing, if you get all of the people loving what they're doing, collaboration then becomes a very very easy but then b the output of that is so much greater than you know trying to force a round peg in a square hole um or square 
peg in a round hole. <laughs> well, and it's so much and it, sure, and it's so much more sustainable. Yeah, I mean, because you know, companies are facing tremendous problems with retention rates, and they've come down. And in COVID, and what's been called the Great Resignation, where people are rethinking their careers, they're coming down even more. Um, well, I, I love all of that, and I, I wanted to give you an anecdote because you're talking about being out of the box. And I remember when I started my own company, I had a meeting with a major company in California, and they said to me at the end of the presentation, this is very out of the box, and I just couldn't resist, and I said, that's because I didn't know where the box is. Yeah. Uh, because it's true, I had entered a field that I had no background in. Um, so I want to thank you, Jackie, so much. This has been episode number 75 of Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Uh, my guest, Jackie Fast, she is the author of Rule Breaker, Rebellious Leadership for the Future of Work. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to the New Books Network's website, type in the show's name, and up will pop other guests over the past year and change. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. Uh, I decided to go with a little bit lighter touch in this case. I couldn't re refuse one from the great George Bernard Shaw uh, regarding rebelliousness and originality. He said, what the world calls originality is only an unaccustomed method of tickling it. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.